Have you found people to be very disappointing at times? People impact our lives, and they, people impact deeply who we are. Think about people who have impacted you deeply. Many people have probably done that. It's probably not just one person. I think of some people in, in my own life, and maybe, maybe you can relate to this, who have been, they've seriously disappointed you. Well, for one thing, I think of the government. <laughs> government makes promises and doesn't keep promises, and that can be quite disappointing. Even my own MP has made promises to me and hasn't kept those promises, and that's disappointing. I've had a boss who has let me down. Maybe you've had a boss who's made a promise, hey, you know, you, you know, next year, next year, the end of the year, or beginning of the year, I'll give you a raise. And the boss doesn't give you a raise. That can be very disappointing. Maybe it's a workmate. Maybe you've had a workmate uh, who said wonderful things to your face, but behind your back, I mean, they're just stabbing you in the back. That hurts. Slander hurts. Maybe a spouse has hurt you. Hey, I hurt my wife all the time, so uh, I, I don't always love my wife as I should. Okay, I let my wife down. I disappoint her. Maybe a friend has disappointed you. I've had a friend say one thing to my face, and then I find out from somebody else that this friend has said the, the, something very different behind my back. I've had friends disappoint me. The reality is that people disappoint us, and, they, and, and, and it hurts We've all experienced someone in whom we've put our trust in only to find that person betraying our trust. They hurt that trust, and in the process, you know what? They hurt us. But we have to ask the question, why are we so focused on people? (laughs) Why are we so focused on people? What gets our hopes in others so high when we know that in the past people have hurt us? Why are we always looking every three years away for, for the government? You know, we look forward to these elections hoping that the government's going to do something different than past governments. And we only find out the next government lets us down again. What gets our hopes in others so high? I mean, shouldn't we know better? <laughs> shouldn't you know better? Well, disappointments are going to come. And when disappointments do come in our lives, there are several options that we can take. Number one, you can be an optimist. You can be one of those eternal optimists whose glass is always, you know, uh, half full. You know what I'm saying? Instead of half empty. You can be one of those eternal optimists and say, well, you know, all these people have disappointed me, but this person's not. Or we can condemn ourselves to skepticism and pessimism going through life with the attitude of your glass is always half empty. And we can reject trusting and hoping in others, can't we? That's an option. I mean, you burned in the past. Why put your trust in someone in the future? Why bother, you might be asking. Do you know what a, a cynic is? I like this, this guy here. H.L. Mencken put it this way. He said, a cynic. A cynic is a man who when he smells flowers, looks around for a coffin. That's one definition of a, of a cynic. Maybe you're like that. Maybe you've burned, been burned and disappointed so many times that you've become a cynic. You've condemned yourself to skepticism and pessimism. Have you developed that kind of cynicism toward other people? Is that where you're at in your life now? How can we trust anyone in the face of so much disappointment? I mean, we, we just have to ask the question. We're surrounded by disappointments. Often the line between trust and cynicism is a very thin, razor-sharp line. Trust is something that should be dear to your heart. It's something I hope that you want to do. But it's very easy, very easy after experiencing disappointments, especially many disappointments in your life, to become very cynical. For a Christian, the themes of trust and hope are very difficult for us to get away from. They're, they're all throughout the Bible, and we're going to find that, particularly in the, the prophets, you're going to see it a lot. The theme of trust comes up a lot. And we're going to see that today in the book of Isaiah. It comes up quite a bit. 
The first prophet, as I said, we're going to look at today is the prophet Isaiah. Well, this is a big book. It's an important book. In the New Testament, you will find this book quoted a lot. In fact, some have said it's, it's the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. It's a very important book. I want to give you a basic outline quickly here, okay? You, you could divide this book into three parts. Some have divided it up into two. Let's just think of it in three parts quickly here as we think of this. In the first 35 chapters... It consists of prophecy, and there's poetry there. Uh, That prophecy and poetry is is all about God and his expression toward his people. You're also going to see his expression and his his attitude toward other nations, like Babylon and Assyria and others. And so the attitude or the atmosphere there is predominantly doom and gloom. It's quite depressing in many ways. Then you have the... there's. Chapters 36 through 39, right, right in the middle section there, it, contain, it contains a dramatic historical event. You have the, the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrian army. And I've given you, uh, I don't know if I put, the, no, I didn't, sorry, I didn't put that up there. But the Assyrians came from the, the northeast and they, they invaded into Judah and they, they put a siege around Jerusalem. And, and we see that dramatic historical event there, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But then in chapters... 40 through the end of the book, which is chapter 66. Again, it goes back to this, the prophecy and preaching and, and poetry. But the atmosphere, the, the attitude in those chapters is quite different. They're precious chapters, precious thoughts, and it's quite hopeful. But what is the book of Isaiah about? What is the book of Isaiah about? Well, we can see what it's about. Sometimes when you look at the first verse, and in this case, I want you to see the very first verse of this prophet. Isaiah 1 verse 1 says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of, and then it mentions several kings, and notice these, these kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, notice which region they are kings of. They are kings of Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom. Uh, sadly, Ju- the, the region of, or the country of Israel divided after the first two great kings, or sorry, the, the second and third king, King David and King Solomon. Remember, they divided into the northern and southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was called Judah. So Isaiah is preaching and living during the time, and he's ministering during the time of these kings, and these were the kings of Judah. So what, what do we have here? What's this book about? Isaiah is a vision about the region of Judah and the city of Jerusalem, to sum it up. I've given you a map here on PowerPoint. Uh, to the west of the Dead Sea there, you'll see the region of Judah. So concerning the people of Isaiah's day here, we want to know what was the problem. These people had a problem, and praise God, we find in, the Isaiah, in Isaiah here the solution. God is not just a God to point out problems to us. He gives us solutions to our problems. And we're going to see what that is. You say, well, what does that have to do with me? Well, concerning us, we want to know... In whom shall we place our trust and our hope? This is what we're going to learn from Isaiah. So number one, what was the problem? What was the problem? Well, the answer is that Israel trusted in the wrong things. Israel trusted in the wrong things. And you can see various wrong things that they trusted in. And by the way, you you need to think of, as, as we look at these, what wrong things do I put my trust in? What wrong things do you put your trust in? Well, look at chapter 1, and I want you to see what's going on here, because we see a little synopsis, summary, introduction here in the first couple verses, starting in verse 2. Isaiah 1, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. By the way, just stop there for a moment. God is talking about his people, Israel. 
These children whom he brought up, he's referring to his people, the nation of Israel. Now, go on to verse 3. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know, my people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. So that's what they did. Right from the very start, God says, These people rebelled against me. They were not faithful to me. So how did they rebel against God? How did they rebel against God? Number one, Israel trusted in other kings. Israel trusted in other kings. When the people of Judah turned their backs on God, whom did they turn to? Whom did they turn to? (laughs) Well, they turned to foreign kings. Here you have the Assyrian threat bearing down on them. The Assyrians had already conquered the northern territory of Israel in 722 B.C. And the Assyrians had slowly making their way down to Jerusalem, eventually put the siege around Jerusalem to starve starve them out. So this threat's becoming more and more real, and, and they wanted to do something about that. But instead of entrusting in God, what did they do? They trusted in Egypt. (laughs) They trusted in Egypt. Well, what did God think about this? Look at chapter 31. Look at chapter 31, and we'll see what God thinks about them putting their trust in Egypt. Chapter 31, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Verse 3. Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out His hand, both He who helps will fall, and He who is helped will fall down. They all will perish together. Do you see what God thinks about us and Israel putting our trust in other people, specifically other nations and other kings? So Israel's problem was what? They trusted in the wrong things, and one of those wrong things was that they trusted other kings. Number two, they trusted other gods. They trusted other gods. And throughout the book, Isaiah attacks the people's idolatry. He attacks their idolatry. Let's look at one verse. Go back to chapter 2. Chapter 2. Keep your fingers ready. We've got a lot of scriptures to look at here, okay? Chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. Some, some of the scriptures I've put on the screen for you. Chapter 2, verse 8 says, Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. That's how God describes them, because Israel trusted other gods. What wrong things did they trust? Number one, they trusted other kings. Number two, they trusted other gods. Number three, they trusted themselves. In chapter 22, Isaiah observes that as the people prepared to defend themselves, which of course is a good thing, uh, nowhere does God say, just kind of give up and let yourself be killed. There's nothing wrong with defending yourself and defending your family, defending your country. The problem was they did not simultaneously trust God to be their defender. They were trusting themselves, which of course is a bad thing. I want you to see what God says in chapter 22. 22 verse 8. Chapter 22 verse 8 says, He removed the protection of Judah You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. You also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great. And you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. You also made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But, but, here's here's the contrast. 
But you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. God doesn't have a problem with the fortification of walls or making pools so that you can have water when, when the siege came that they would have water to drink. God didn't have a problem with that. The problem was they trusted themselves instead of trusting God. So what, was, what wrong things did they trust? Number one, they trusted other kings. Number two, they trusted other gods. Number three, they trusted themselves. And number four, Israel trusted their own unfaithful leaders. They trusted their own unfaithful leaders. We can see this in chapter 3. When the leaders' plans differed from God's plans, the people should have demonstrated whom they truly trusted by refusing to follow their leaders into disobedience. When a leader is disobeying God, God says you obey him. You don't obey the leader who is disobeying him. But they did not do that. Instead, they followed their leaders. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stock and the store, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water. The mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet, and the diviner and the elder the captain of fifty and the honorable man, the counselor and the skillful artisan, and the expert enchanter. Now, we'll just stop there for a moment. Notice there are several people mentioned here who are leaders. God says he took them away. They were trusting in these unfaithful leaders. God took them away. Now look at verse 14. Verse 14. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of his people and his princes. For you have eaten up the vineyard, the plunder of the poor is in your houses. Why did God do this? Why did God enter into judgment with the elders and the leaders of his people? Because they were unfaithful. They were not good leaders. So we have to ask the question, as we see the Israelites trusting in the wrong things, we have to ask the question, whom shall we trust? Whom shall we trust? We're not the people of Judah, but we are similar. For example, we are often tempted to put our trust in the wrong things. We're often tempted to put a trust in, our, in ourselves, in our own abilities, in our own strengths, in our family, in our government, or you know, maybe we want to trust you know, New Zealand's safe because you know, we're way down here in the bottom of the world and, and kind of you know, in the southern end of the Pacific Ocean. And, and who really wants to bother New Zealand? It's very easy for us to put our, tr our trust in that sort of thing. Or we might think, well, you know, if Indonesia comes and attacks us, well, you know, Australia is going to help. Is our trust in Australia? <laughs> I mean, that's the same sort of thing Israel did. When the Assyrians attack, we'll put our trust in Egypt. So, you know, we as New Zealand, we can come up with the same sort of things, right? We can put our trust in the wrong sort of things as well. Think about these questions for a moment. What motivates you? What motivates you? What are your real goals? Your real ambitions? Your real dreams? Your real purposes? And what do you trust in to accomplish those purposes and ends? Okay? So I encourage you, just make a list sometimes. Ask yourself, what are your real dreams, your real purposes, your real goals... And then ask yourself in the next column over, what am I trusting in to accomplish those purposes, goals, and dreams? Is what you are trusting in enough to carry you through your life? I mean, if you're trusting in the economy, your bank account, you know... Your, your superannuation fund or whatever, I don't know, man. If you're trusting in those sort of things or a finance company, that's not a solid foundation. Look at how many finance companies have gone belly up. They've died. They went bankrupt. Those things, you cannot trust in those things to carry you through your life. There's only one thing you can trust in. And we see what the solution is here in Isaiah 
What is the solution? The short answer is trust God. Trust God. That sounds simple, but that's the, that is one of the primary messages of Isaiah. God alone is the right focus of our hope. And therefore, he alone is the right object of our trust. In chapter 40, chapter 40, Isaiah sets the idols just side by side with God, and, and he does that in order to demonstrate the futility of trusting in anything other than God. I want you to see this. Isaiah sets God and the idols side by side here. And just see how silly this looks, okay? It really looks silly, but, I mean, we have idols of our hearts too. And it looks really silly when we set those things next to the true God. Now look at this, Isaiah 40, verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to Him? I'm in verse 19 now. The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is to impoverish, or whoever is to impoverish for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He, it is God, who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely. Scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth, when he will also blow on them, and they will wither, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. Do you realize what God's saying there? Let me just explain that. God's saying he has given a name to all the stars. The trillions and trillions and trillions of stars. God has a name for every one of them. He made it, and he gave it a name. Let's read on in verse 26. Not only does he call them by, all by name, by the greatness of his power and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Do you get the point? We'll stop there. <laughs> so what about God can we trust in? What is it about God that we can trust in? What does this book, whom God wrote, these words are alive, they are powerful, and they are relevant. What is it that God is showing us about himself from this book that we can trust in? Number one, trust God's coming judgment. Trust God's coming judgment. Much of this book is filled with predictions, and these predictions are promising the judgment of God upon various nations. In fact, if you read in chapters 13 through 24, Isaiah promises God's judgment upon many nations. Babylon and Syria, just to name a few. This vision of God's judgment reaches its climax in chapter 24. I want you to look at chapter 24, because this is the climax of this list of judgments upon the nations. Isaiah 24, verse 1. Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface and scatters abroad its inhabitants. And it shall be, as with the people, so with the priests, 
as with the servant, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The land shall be entirely emptied and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. God's judgment was coming. And through the prophet Isaiah, God declared His judgment was coming. And when God makes promises, the wonderful thing I love about the Bible is you always see fulfilled promises. God is not a liar. God keeps His promises. Number one, we see you can trust God's coming judgment. Number two, trust God's coming deliverance and salvation. Trust God's coming deliverance and salvation. Right before God's judgment, which we just read about, in chapter 13, Isaiah gives us a beautiful song of deliverance. It's a beautiful song of deliverance. Uh, Chapter 13, sorry, starts talking about this judgment, but I want you to see here, I've got it on the screen, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2 says this, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust And will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. Chapter 33, verse 22 says this, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, He will save us. My friend, it is this lesson that God teaches in dramatic historical fashion in the very center of this book. We see it in vivid color. It's in Blu-ray, if you will, in high definition. Okay, do you get the point? (laughs) It is in vivid, high definition, full, vivid color right before our eyes here in chapters 36 through 39. God promises to save, and what does God do? He keeps His promises. Let me give you the context here. The context is the siege of Jerusalem. Now here's a really old um, thing that they found. I, don't, I can't remember if it was found in Babylon or, or over in, in Nineveh, but one of those places there in the Middle East. It's a representation of the, the siege of Jerusalem when the Assyrians, with 185 troops, 185 troops surrounded Jerusalem, put a siege on them, and that just means... They were trying to starve them out. And so it looks like everybody in the city of Jerusalem is going to die. And I want you to see what actually happened. This is amazing. Truly amazing. Look at chapter 37. I love these verses here in chapter 37. Because you, you see God's power. You see his faithfulness. You see his love. You see how he loves his promises. Chapter 37, verse 36. The angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained in Nineveh. Now it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of of Nisroch, his god, that his sons, Adremelech and Shezer, struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. God made promises, and God kept his promises to his people. So whom shall we trust? Whom shall you trust? Well, in the book of Isaiah, we can see that God is one who is utterly unique. By the way, that's, that's the definition of holiness. God says he's holy, it means he's unique, he is distinct, he is separate from his creation. We see in Isaiah that there is no one like God, there is no one else that has the moral purity of God. Read chapter 6, for example. Isaiah just catches a glimpse of God, and he confesses, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. 
And he says, woe is me. I am undone. There is nobody else as loving as God is. Indeed, one of the most striking things we read about God is the love that he has for a people who are unfaithful to him. And I love this about God. This is one of the things I love about God is because every week I'm unfaithful to him. I have idols of my heart. I worship myself, but yet God still loves me. Again and again, the the people of Israel turned away from God. They trusted in other things. And again, God persistently pursues them. And so we see a picture of God that shows us why he is so worthy of trust. Why can he make the claim, I am worthy of trust? Trust in me, he says. Why? Because he is a God who is utterly unique. He's not like us. (laughs) He's unchanging. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a God who makes promises. He never lies, and he keeps his promises. He is always faithful. He is always love. And certainly he's many more things, but these are just some of the things we see in Isaiah. So thus far, we've seen that Judah had a problem, right? They trusted in the wrong things. What is the solution? God is the solution to the people's trust problem. God is always the solution. And and certainly that's true. We, We see that, I hope. I hope that that's obvious. But what I want you to see next is that God kind of takes... The, the picture, if you will, and he focuses it a bit sharply, uh, more sharp. Okay? You ever seen a picture that's just a little out of focus? Okay? That's what God does in the book of Isaiah. He takes the picture and he focuses in, he zooms in, and, and the picture became, becomes very sharp. You see, the solution that we see in Isaiah is not just God. The hope for God's people comes in one person, and it's not just any person. The hope for God's people comes in the Messiah. It comes in the Messiah. And Messiah means the anointed one. He is the anointed one. So what is the solution? The answer is this, hope and trust in Jesus Christ. Hope and trust in Jesus Christ. First of all, I want you to see that we should hope in a coming king. Hope in a coming king. Look at chapter 9. Look at chapter 9. And I'll remind you that Isaiah is writing hundreds of years before Jesus ever came to the earth. This is hundreds of years before Jesus ever humbled himself and became man. Isaiah 9, look at verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Do you understand who Isaiah is talking about here? Hundreds of years before Jesus ever came, Isaiah is prophesying the one who would come and be the king of kings and lord of lords. Hope in a coming king. Number two, hope in a coming servant. Hope in a coming servant. Look at chapter 42. Chapter 42. Chapter 42 declares that this king is also a servant. Look at chapter 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold... My elect one in whom my soul delights. This is God speaking. He says, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. 
He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. The question that cries out is this, my friend. How can a holy God forgive and restore the very people that he is charging with rebellion? Now this is relevant for you, my friend, because we've all rebelled against God. I've rebelled against God and so have you. And so we need to know the answer to the question of how can a holy God forgive and restore those who have rebelled against Him? And the answer comes through this servant. It's through this servant, and many of us are familiar with Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. They are some of the most well-known verses of the entire book. But I want you to notice how chapter 53 ends. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but look at here. It's on the screen. Isaiah 53, verse 11. Here's how it ends. Out of the anguish of his soul shall he see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therein lies the answer, my friend, to the question, how can a holy God forgive and restore sinners? How can it happen? The answer is found in Isaiah 53, 11. God did it through his righteous one, his servant, Jesus Christ. The beating, the mocking, the spitting, the torture that Jesus Christ served, well, it served an unexpected purpose. This servant suffered to bear the sins of God's people, That's the point of Isaiah 53. Number three, hope in the king and servant as one. What can we hope in? Where can our hope lie? Our hope should lie in the king and the servant as one. Remarkably, we find in Isaiah that this king and this servant are really the same person. There's not dyslexia going on here, okay? What a marvelous union we have here. A reader of the first half of Isaiah might ask the question, where is this great king? Where is this great king? And the answer is found in the second half of the book. The suffering servant is the king. In chapter 7, verse 14, we see that this servant and this king is Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. In chapter 9, verse 6, we saw earlier that he is the mighty God. Jesus Christ is God. And so the good news is this. This person is the one who will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. It's him. Are you looking and hoping in him? Number four, hope in Jesus as this one person. This king and this servant are one, and this one person is Jesus. That is what Isaiah wants you to walk away with, my friend. This, who is this one? Well, look at chapter 61. Chapter 61. Chapter 61. I want to read just two verses. Pay attention, because this might be a bit confusing at first here, okay? Chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Let's stop there. At this moment, you might be a bit confused, and I don't blame you. (laughs) Because you might be sitting here thinking, now wait a minute, that doesn't say Jesus Christ there. How do I know that's talking about Jesus Christ? And if you ask that question, that would be a good question to ask. But to answer the question, well, let me, let me make you think for a moment. Because hundreds of years after God used Isaiah to write those very words that we see there, Luke recorded an account in the life of Jesus Christ. A very interesting account in the life of Jesus Christ that sheds some light on what is being said in those two verses. After describing the episode in which Jesus resisted Satan's temptation in the wilderness, 
It's very illuminating what Luke proceeds to tell us about the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Look at these words on the screen coming from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. Here's what the Bible says. And Jesus, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and, re, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet, who? Isaiah, was given to him, to Jesus. And and he, he, Jesus, unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Sound familiar? We just read those verses from Isaiah chapter 61. But maybe you still don't understand. How do we know those verses are talking about Jesus? How do we know that? Look what Jesus says next. Jesus reads Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and Luke says, He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So how do we know it's talking about Jesus? Because Jesus said it's talking about him. Jesus said Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 are talking about him in Luke chapter 4. So here's the point. Isaiah 61 was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the king and Jesus is the servant. He's both in one and he came for his people. So let's end by asking the question then, my friend. In whom shall we hope? In whom shall we hope? Well, my friends... Let me just say this. Christianity is not some, some list of abstract, theoretical set of ideas. The book of Isaiah shows us that God is a persistent, personal lover. He made us. He knows our hurts. He knows your pains. He knows our loves. In fact, He knows everything about us, including our sins. He knows our thoughts. Yes, He's also holy. And so God had to plan a way to love unholy people like you and like me while also maintaining his justice and his righteousness and his holiness. That presents a problem. You might say, well, how, how can God still be holy, just, and righteous, but yet still forgive those of us who are sinners? How can that happen? How did he do it? He did it in Christ. God became man Jesus lived the perfect life that you should have lived. He died on the cross. He died the death that you deserve to die. And He did it on the cross. And He took upon Him the sins of the world. He took upon the sins of those of everyone who would ever believe and repent of their sin. So my friend, I hope you see the requirements of God's holiness and God's love were both satisfied together at that moment. He did for you what you can't do for yourself. It makes it possible for the penalty of sin to be paid for so that sin can be forgiven. Do you want, it? Do you want that kind of forgiveness? Do you want the forgiveness of God? I hope you do. Jesus said he came for the sick, not for the healthy. Good people don't get to heaven. He came for sinners, not the righteous. So I have to ask the question, are you sick and sinful? Do you recognize that you are sick and sinful? We're all sick and sinful, and that's the people Jesus came for. And if that represents you, because I'm in the same boat, then repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Look to this servant who has borne your sins and who will one day come again to reign victorious as King of kings and Lord of lords. As you read the book of Isaiah, you should be struck by how much it refers to the rebellion of God's people. We see it often in this book. 
God's people rebel. Other nations rebel against him and want nothing to do with him. Second, you should also be struck by how much more emphasis is given to both God's judgment and his love for his people. Yes, we see sinners rebelling against the holy God. But more more than that, I want you to walk away seeing that this God loves sinners. He reaches out to sinners. God's judgment will come to those who don't accept Jesus as the payment for sin. But God loves those of us who repent of our sins. And so this book is all about God's love for his people. This book is all about God. So who are the people that God loves? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because it is those who repent of their sins. Look what Isaiah 59.20 says. A Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Now in those verses there, you'll, you'll see Jacob, which is representing Israel. Remember, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. But in these next verses, notice that these repenters not only include Israel, but they include others. Isaiah 56, verse 8, The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Isaiah 63, verse 16, For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. Oh, that's wonderful news. God is not just the God of Israel. He is the God of Gentiles, and that's us. Now notice these repenters are the ones who are humble and contrite. Isaiah 66, verse 2 says this, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now notice these repenters respond to the Messiah's invitation and they do something with that invitation. So you, my friend, if you're sitting here under the sound of my voice, you've heard the invitation from Jesus himself. And in fact, Jesus gives us an invitation here. And I want you to see this because look at Isaiah 55. Put your eyeballs on the page, please. These are God's words, not mine. This is God's invitation to you. These words are alive and they are powerful. These are the words of the living God to you. He gives you, every one of us here, an invitation. And it calls for a response. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Look at these words from God. God says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear what your soul may live or that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. My friend, do you hear the invitation? I hope it's obvious. Jesus says, come, drink, eat of him. That's the invitation. But it calls for a response. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways. My ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. My friend, there's the response. 
To all of us, Jesus says, come. To those of you who are thirsty, he says, drink of me and you will find me to be the living water. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Eat of me and you will never hunger again. Jesus says here to seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near and let the wicked forsake his way. What are you trusting in right now? You're all trusting in something. You are all trusting in something. But what are you trusting in right now? Now that thing can change from time to time, can it? What are you hoping in? What are your dreams, your aspirations, your goals? What are you trying to drink to fill your soul? To you who are thirsty, Jesus says, come. Nothing else is going to fill. Nothing else will satisfy. Oh, we might try to fill and satisfy these, these, these longings with other things. That's why people drink alcohol. That's why people take drugs. That's why people go and jump off cliffs and out of airplanes and bungee jump and do all sorts of weird and strange and funny things. That's why people have pleasures and hobbies and spend money and have retail therapy and the list goes on and on. Why do people do that? They're trying to fill the longings of their heart. And why do people continually keep doing these things? Because it never fills their hearts. My friend, there's only one person who can fill your heart. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Nothing else is going to bear the weight of your life like God himself. Nothing else will fill and satisfy you. And so God loves those who put their trust in him. He loves it, and you reap the benefits. <laughs> God loves those who put their trust in them, who hope in him, and who are guided by him. My friend, that is the message of the book of Isaiah. What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in God? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone? If not, my friend, I encourage you to come to Jesus and to put your trust in him and in him alone. There's nothing else that will fill the longings of your heart. Let's pray.